are continuing, we're actually wrapping up this series that we are calling Follow, in which we have been looking at what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it really mean to follow him? And as we've looked at uh, his life over these past eight weeks, we've learned a couple things about discipleship. First and foremost, we've learned what a disciple is. A disciple is simply someone who is seeking to look and to live more and more like the one that they follow. And so in our first week, we, we defined discipleship as being people who look, live, and love more like Jesus. But then we looked at the path that, is, that a disciple takes, that first and foremost, discipleship begins with an invitation from God, an invitation from Christ to come and to see. It's an invitation that we then pass on to others uh, to help them come and see, to take a closer look at Jesus and his life and why he matters and what it means to follow him. At some point, then, there comes a kind of a moment of commitment where Jesus says, are you all in? In which he challenges his disciples. He says, truly, I say to you, uh, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you are not fit to be my disciple. And we looked at what that means to truly trust Jesus with everything. And then we talked about the importance that community plays and how discipleship is really only done in relationship with other people. As we learn to disciple each other, encourage one another in our walks with God. And then over the past two weeks, we looked at leadership and what it means to lead others and the role that risk and trust play in all of that. And so as we kind of come to the end of this series, I want to circle back to where we began. I want us to start by taking a closer look at the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to go and make more disciples. But I think it's only right that before we even dive into our text for this morning, we take a few moments to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is indeed an amazing calling that you've given to us. You've called us to go, to, to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, on our own, that's, that seems like a daunting task. And so we ask that as we once more take a look at that calling, that commission that you have given us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand. That Holy Spirit, you give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, I want us to take a look again at Matthew chapter 28 and the great commission that Jesus gave to his original followers. You see, this happened after Jesus rose again from the dead. He'd already been tried, he'd been executed, and what we learned is that three days later he has now risen from the dead and he goes ahead of his disciples and tells them to meet him in Galilee. And when they get there, they, he, he meets with them, and these are kind of the last words that he gives to them. These are the final words that Matthew records in his gospel. Gathering those disciples together, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Final parting words from Jesus to his original, well, now eleven. The original 11 disciples saying, I want you guys now to go and make disciples. That can seem like a, quite a daunting task because the reality is, is that Jesus basically says that's, that's our task, that's our mission as well. That what he has entrusted to his first disciples and now to us, those who would call ourselves his followers, is nothing less than a world-changing commission. 
He says, I want you to go. And just as you have been discipled by me, now I want you to disciple other people so that people from all nations will know who God is, that they will be baptized into his name in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they would then be instructed in how to live out their faith. This mission was given, yes, to his original disciples, but it's a a mission that has now been handed down to us. And what Jesus says is he says, first and foremost, if you do nothing else as my followers, do this. Go and make more disciples. And I don't know about you, but kind of hearing that and realizing this is kind of a global calling, this is an earth-changing calling, and it rests on our shoulders, that's kind of intimidating, I mean, a lot of us, I think, when we hear that commission and we realize Jesus is actually calling to us and saying, I want you to go, our our first response is, really, me? How? How how am I supposed to do that? I mean, who am I to actually, like, go out into the world and, and seek to transform the world with nothing but words, with nothing but this message, with nothing but an invitation to follow Jesus the way that I've been following Jesus? I mean, if I look at my own life, I realize there are many times when in following Jesus, I have tripped. Many times when I've stumbled and fallen short. How could I possibly live out that calling? And I think it's very, very easy for most of us to then say, well, to try and kind of like put some walls around this commandment a little bit, to try and protect ourselves from it a bit and say, well, he, he wasn't really talking to every Christian. He was talking to, you know, those, those original disciples and then the other people who would be leaders of the church, right? So that the Great Commission, it's really just for pastors. You know, pastors are the ones who are supposed to do the Great Commission. Maybe, maybe seminary professors, maybe people who have a theological degree, but, but for those of us who, who aren't those, I mean, this really isn't for those of us who are like teachers right? This isn't for those of us who are general contractors or who underwrite your insurance policy. I mean, this really isn't for grandparents. This is for people who really know what they're doing, correct? Well, I don't think so. Because as we'll see as we get further into this text, what we see is Jesus really does mean all y'all. That when he says, you go and make disciples, he's using a plural form of you. And furthermore, he then goes on and he says, and, and by the way, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That really means to the very end of time. So it means that all of his disciples everywhere, at every place and every time have this calling. So, so how do we do that? Well, to help with that, I want us to look back at that original group of disciples that Jesus called. Because I think that we're tempted sometimes to look at that original group of 12 and say, well, those, those guys really kind of had it all together. I mean, yeah, they were average Joes when Jesus first called them, but by the end of his time with them, they were awesome, right? They were knocking it out of the park. These were the super trained guys. These are the saints, right? The apostles. I mean, we're not those guys. But the truth is, is that even after their original calling and even after this great commission, what we see is that these guys were really more like us than we probably realize. There were people who, in their walk with Jesus, had moments where they were really shining, and then they had moments when they really messed up. Take Simon Peter, for example. We've kind of been looking at Peter's story as we've gone throughout this series. Peter is a walking contradiction. Okay, he's the first person to call Jesus the Messiah, but he's also the one to most loudly deny that he knows him the moment Jesus is arrested. Jesus had three years walking with Jesus at this point, and right there at the very end, what we still see is he kind of is waffling back and forth. Likewise, he's called the rock, and yet he hid in fear after the crucifixion, worrying what the Jewish leaders would do to him if they caught him. 
And likewise, even after receiving this great commission, we learn that Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. He is actually one of the first people to do cross-cultural ministry, to share the good news with people who are not Jewish, and yet later on, the apostle Paul ends up having to rebuke him and call him to repent because he then refused to eat with Gentiles. You see, Peter, this guy who was called to be the rock of the church, the leader of the church, had many moments when he failed and fell short. Many moments even after receiving the Great Commission and seeing the risen Jesus when he kind of didn't quite get it. Where his own weaknesses, his own fears, his own biases and prejudices got in the way of him following Jesus with everything that he had. And so the question we have to ask when we look at Peter and, and the rest of the disciples is, so how did he do it? How is it that this flawed man was able to lead a world-changing movement? Because when you actually look at the life of Jesus, what you see is that, uh, when you look at the life of Peter, what you see is a man who loved Jesus so much he was willing to ultimately die for him and became a pillar of the church, of a religious movement that would sweep across the Roman world and change the empire forever. So how did he do it? How did he do it? Well, I think to know the answer to that question, we have to listen to some of his own words. This is what Peter writes in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, talking about how he does this ministry, how he lives his life, and, and what he's calling the church to. He writes these words, he says, talking about Jesus, he said, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. See, what Peter says is he says that the way that I do this, the way that I live my life, the way that we live our lives together as the church is by knowing the power and the promises of the one who called us. It's by knowing the power and the promises of the one who called us. Peter says that's the only way this is possible. That's the only way that average people like you and me with all of our faults with all of our weaknesses, with all of our foibles, with all of the ways in which sometimes we lack faith. It's the only way that we can possibly be about the mission that God has called us to, to be about. Peter says it's by knowing the power and the promises of the one who is called. Well, where do you get this idea of power and promises from? I think he got this idea of power and promises from the Great Commission. Because let's really look at it in greater detail. It begins with this word, therefore. And by the way, a good question for you whenever you're doing Bible study is every time you run across a therefore, you should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because it's a context word, okay? It lets you know something was just said, and based on that thing, now we do this. Okay? That's what the therefore is there for. And what it lets us know is that the Great Commission doesn't stand by itself. It actually has a context. And this is the context. The context points us back to power and promise. It begins with these words, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, the Great Commission is bookended by power and promise. It begins with Jesus' own authority. 
What Jesus says is he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in the Greek, this word is exousia, and it's a royal word. It's a kingly word. It means that whoever has authority has the right to control or command. And they have the right to control or command because they have the power to back it up. And so the king has the right to control and command anything in his kingdom because he has the power to back it up and to enforce it. And what Jesus says is he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is now mine. It has been given to me. Which means that he rules over everything, seen and unseen. And the reason he can make that claim to power and authority is because he's risen from the dead. It's one of the things that, you know, I was talking with a couple of our high school youth just a week ago. One of the questions one of the youth asked me, they said, how can we know that Jesus truly is God when there's all these other religions out there? And I said, because Jesus is the only one who actually came back to life. Our entire faith is staked on a historical truth claim. It's not just a nice idea that somebody came down a mountainside with and said, oh, believe this and just believe it and you'll trust me. No, what Jesus actually says, he says, if I don't come back from the dead, you don't have to listen to me. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes it really clear. He says, in fact, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we are a people most to be pitied. Christianity stands or falls on the fact that in the first century AD in Jerusalem, they killed this man and he came back to life. And there's historical evidence to point to it. And Jesus says, look, you want to know that I have all power and authority? I have conquered death. And all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me, which means a couple of really profound things. First and foremost, when he says, therefore, go make disciples, that's not optional. He's saying, I have authority, and therefore, because of that authority, I am sending you. And this doesn't mean that we can say, okay, maybe I'll get to that after my coffee appointments. Maybe, you know what, I'm, I'm really not, I'm, I'm not the best at this, Jesus, so I, I appreciate the invitation. Maybe give that to somebody else. No, it's not an invitation. He says, go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Furthermore, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, it means that at the end of the day, we're all answerable to him for that commission. That at the end of time, we have to stand before him and know that he gave us that commission and answer for what we've done with it. And whether you're a Christian or not, what it means is that you will stand before him and he is going to ask you the question, what did you do with the life I gave you and the purpose that I called you to? Now, on the surface, if that was all Jesus said, that is terrifying. Because he's basically saying, you're on the hook for this commission. But what I love about Jesus is Jesus is not content to just come and command. He's not content to just come and command. Over and above his desire to come and command is his desire to come and be. To come and be with us. Because he doesn't simply end with this assertion to power. What he ends with is a promise of his presence. I love what he then says after giving them this incredible calling. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And again, here, like, our English language just doesn't quite get it. 
Because what he's saying here is so emphatic in the original language. He's basically saying, and behold, look, I myself will be with you every single day until the end of time. I myself will be with you every single day until the end of time. Nothing will be able to separate you from my love. The Great Commission begins with a call to Jesus' authority, but it ends with a promise of his presence. And what I love about that is what Jesus is saying is he's saying, yeah, the commission is big. And yeah, it has a claim on your whole life. But my promise to you is that I will help you live it out. My promise to you is that if I'm calling you to go, it means that I'm also going to go with you. My promise is that this calling is not one that I simply send you out into. It's one that I'm inviting you to join me on. Jesus is saying that, that he will always be with us, always be present. And that means that that power and that authority, they go with us too. He's saying you can live out this commission, but only by resting in my power and my presence. That's actually how we live out our mission is by resting in the power and the presence of Jesus. I think it's really appropriate that we're actually ending this sermon series here with this promise of Jesus' presence because of the fact that next weekend begins Advent. These four weeks to lead up to Christmas. And one of the things that we learn as we go through the Advent season is that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here in this great commission, Jesus is saying, and I will be your Emmanuel every single day of your life. I will always be with you. I will walk with you into every single calling to which I call you. That in the highs and the lows, in the good times and in the bad, in those moments when it's easy, in those moments when it's insanely hard, I am there. I will never leave you or forsake you. My presence is with you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. When you fall short, my forgiveness is given. You never, ever, ever go alone into this calling. Which means that each and every single day we can wake up and we can step into that mission field knowing that Jesus is there. It means that every single step that we take is a moment spent in God's divine presence. And that means that every relationship that we have, every person that we encounter, is a divine relationship put there by God. It's something that actually the Apostle Paul picks up on in uh, Acts chapter 17 when he's preaching to people in Athens. This is what he says in Acts 17 verse 26. He says, From one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. See, Paul is just picking up on the Great Commission. He's saying, look, God has appointed times and seasons so that people can find him though he's not far from every one of us. What that means is that because you and I have the presence of Jesus in our lives, that means that we then take that presence out into the world so that other people can find Jesus too. I mean, have you ever thought about the practical implications of this? He, he basically says right here, 
that God marked out people's appointed times and history and boundaries and did this so that they could find him. Which means that when you are riding the metro train downtown to Chicago to do your job for the day, that person sitting next to you or sitting across the aisle from you is there by God's divine decree. And they're on that train so that they can meet with God. And guess what? You're across the aisle and you know Jesus. That's no coincidence. But furthermore, you can do that. You can live into that calling because in God, you live and move and have your being. Jesus Christ is with you. He's right there too. And he says, let's go. That's a person I love. Let's talk to them. Let's find out what's going on in their life. Let's find out if there are ways we can serve them, pray for them, tell them the good news. Let's do this. Why? Because I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with you. We have the unique privilege, ladies and gentlemen, if you are a follower of Jesus, to every single day wake up in the morning and receive an open invitation from Jesus to go on an adventure. One of the things that my daughter is doing right now is she's reading The Hobbit, um, which I love that my eight-year-old is reading The Hobbit. And, she, and one of the things that, uh, one of her favorite scenes is actually the, the, one of the earliest scenes in the book. Bilbo Baggins is sitting there minding his own business, right? And this is what hobbits love. Hobbits love to stay at home. They love to eat food. They love to be comfortable and just hang out with friends and family. They don't leave their community. They don't go on adventures. They don't do these things because hobbits love comfort. And suddenly Gandalf the wizard shows up. And he talks and he starts talking to Bilbo. And Bilbo finally ends up asking him, is there, is there something that I can help you with? To which Gandalf says, and I love these words, he's just like, he's like perhaps. You see, I'm looking for someone to go on an adventure. And what that sparks for Bilbo is a life that, yeah, takes him out of the Shire, takes him out of his comfort zone. But it brings him on an adventure that changes his world forever. Not only his world, but the lives of the people that he meets, the friends that he makes. Every single day, when you wake up in the morning, God, Jesus extends his hand and says, come with me. Let's go on an adventure today. Let's be about the transformation of the world. Let's go out into our workplaces, our communities. Let's go into our gatherings with our family and friends, realizing that we go there with a divine purpose, a beautiful purpose to bring light and life and hope and forgiveness and freedom to people who don't realize how desperately they need it. To bring good news to people who are longing for it and thirsting for it. On our own, we can't do it. But the good news of this message, the good news of this great commission is you don't do it alone. Jesus says, let's do it together. Let's go. See, that's really what the life of a disciple is all about. You never really arrive. Not until Jesus comes back. The life of a disciple is a life of constantly learning from and walking with Jesus every single day. It's really a life of learning to follow, following where he's leading. And can you imagine the difference it would make if every single day this church woke up and when we woke up each morning we said, all right, Jesus, where are we going today? If every single day, in addition to praying that prayer, we spent time in his word saying, all right, Jesus, show me how you do it. How do you live this life? How can I be more like you? And that in those moments when we're afraid, we rest 
in his power and in his promise and say, Lord, because you can go with me, because you do go with me, I know all things are possible. Honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I think that that would lead to transformed lives. I think that that would lead to changed communities. I think that would lead to a redeemed world. Jesus started with 11 and reached the nations. And now he says, and just as the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here's my promise. I will be with you every single day until the end of time. It's with that in mind that I want to close this series by praying. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you so much thanks that although you give us this awesome, world-changing calling, you don't leave us to do it on our own. You go with us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you dwell within our lives. You do so that, yes, we might grow, but more than that, so that other people might know you. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that, those, that that power and that promise would, would dwell in our hearts and our minds, that it would take root and that it would grow. And Lord, that we would leave all of our fears and our concerns and our hang-ups and our doubts at your feet, knowing that if you call us, you will go with us, that if you send us, you will equip us, and that in all things, your power is made perfect in weakness. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, you who are indeed our King, that we say, Amen.